Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented by Sigbjorn Sonnesin of Durham University as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series. The paper is entitled, What is the Point of Our Praising the Saints? The Convergence of Theory and Practice in Twelfth Century Saints' Cults. For what purpose is there a solemnity about us? What need do they have of earthly honors, whom the, the Father of Heaven honors according to the truthful promise of His Son? What value, then, is our celebration? The purpose and function of medieval saints' cults has been a more or less constant but also contentious area of research, particularly after the torchbearers of the Enlightenment, such as David Hume and Edward Gibbon, described such cults as the very epitome of vulgar, crass credulity. The explanations given by medieval thinkers, theologians, and preachers themselves have only rarely been given prominence in the increasingly sophisticated scholarship on this question that has appeared in recent decades particularly in the wake of the seminal works of Peter Brown and his pupils. A wide and rich range of answers as to what the purpose the veneration of saints served in the Christian Middle Ages have been offered, ranging from a focus on the utility of saints as moral exemplar, through a pointing out of the function saints' cults had for the creation of group identities and cohesion, to an emphasis on the way in which such cults became important as a source of local and particularly episcopal power. Gabor Klanitzai, in particular, has built on such scholarship to formulate a comprehensive and hugely influential account of how the phenomenon of royal and dynastic saints' cults emerged as an important factor in the consolidation of newly Christianized political entities, first in Anglo-Saxon England and later in the northern and eastern peripheries of the Latin West. But for all the advances of knowledge and understanding of medieval saints' cults made by recent scholarship, the principles and underpinnings of this research have been anchored in modern literary, historical, social, and anthropological theory, rather than in the theological thought current at the time. What I propose to do in the following is, first, to offer a contribution towards illuminating the theological reasoning and justification behind medieval saints' cults, and second, to offer a case study of how these principles may be found expressed in the textual remains of specific saints' cults. Now, it may at this point be objected that there is no obvious reason for assuming that rarefied theological explanation would tell us anything about what most Christians thought and felt in relation to the veneration of saints. To a certain extent, this must be conceded. The ways in which the greater part of 12th century experience, the greater part of 12th century people experienced the veneration of saints has not been recorded. My reasons for looking at the theological underpinnings of the veneration of saints issue from the premise that the texts that take us the closest to the actual practice of a saint's cult in the Middle Ages are the liturgical texts used for the commemoration and celebration of that saint on designated days. These constitute the supreme expression of the cults, and at the same time the core substance around which the cults as a whole revolve. While other forms of source material, be they architectural, pictorial or narrative certainly provide invaluable information on various aspects of the saints' cult, the liturgical texts reveal in a privileged way the semiotic system anchoring these other types of durable expression. I will suggest in what follows that closer scrutiny to the theological context invoked by the liturgical texts themselves may help us account for passages that may cause problems for other schools of interpretation. So in what follows, I will first sketch out very briefly some of the main approaches to medieval saints' cults in later literature. I will then use St. Bernard of Clairvaux's fifth sermon for the Feast of All Saints as a point of departure for providing a theological and philosophical context and grounding for the veneration of saints. And finally, we will look briefly at one particular saint's office as an illustration of how the theological foundation may help us bring out the meaning of liturgical texts as they were used. A crucial point of reference for modern scholarship on medieval saints' cults has been the verdict of David Hume and Edward Gibbon that these cults represented the worst side of popular credulity 
and the reintroduction of popular polytheism into the monotheistic fabric of Christianity. The cultic actions comprising the veneration of saints are thus dismissed as little more than magic incantations to a minor deity, a credulous attempt at soliciting favor or propitiation, and a distortion of the abstract clarity of the Christian doctrine as such. Modern scholarship has to a great extent developed in opposition to the influential opinions of Hume and Gibbon. An early example of this is found in the scholarship of J.A. Froude, who in the mid-19th century argued that the main purpose of saint cults was to provide examples of good conduct to be imitated. The rationale behind saints' cults, according to this mode of thought, was thus moral rather than religious in the strictest sense. More recently, the dominant school of thought regarding saints' cults has been founded on the work of Peter Brown. Brown, as is well known, has redirected the main focus of saint cults' studies to the function saints' cults had in relation to social power structures. On Brown's account, the holy man or woman and their graves and relics after their death became the supporting pillars of a social structure favoring the visions and ambitions of an elite. And this social structure was inculcated in the populace by way of cultic practices that replicated sorry, that's my mom, uh, and glorified this sort of uh, hierarchy envisioned and desired by the elite. The holy man or woman was not primarily a model of conduct, but a supreme fixer whose intercession could only be attained through submission to the guardians of his cult. Lastly, there has been a marked, marked tendency in recent scholarship towards seeing the hagiographical and liturgical production of the Middle Ages as at least partly an attempt to inscribe local and re regional identities into the grand narrative of Christian sal salvation history. Such texts, it is argued, construct a past through which new regions are linked to a shared cultural and religious identity. The main function of St. Cults on this view is to create an identity and a community from discourse alone, constructing in writing a past that is active in the present, although it never existed in an extra-textual reality. Now, I'm not about to argue that any of these models should be rejected wholesale and out of hand. Rather, I will argue that they all need, to various degrees, to be supplemented by another model taking into account the strong links between the cultic practices of the High Middle Ages and the most sophisticated theological and philosophical thought of the same period. So, let us then turn to a medieval expression of the theology underlying the veneration of saints. I have chosen to structure my exposition around St. Bernard's Sermon 5 for the Feast of All Saints. In this sermon, Bernard explained what the rationale and purpose of this important liturgical feast was taking particular care to show the strong correspondence between what was celebrated, the form of celebration, and the ultimate purpose this celebration was to serve. In so doing, he offered a very useful condensed summary of a long and rich patristic tradition of thought on the function and purpose of liturgical prayer in general, and the veneration of saints in particular. I've chosen to focus on this sermon not because I consider this sermon particularly original or directly influential on subsequent thought, but on the contrary, because it presents ideas that have matured and developed through centuries. The internal logic of this sermon, if unpacked, illustrates the theological rationale for the veneration of saints through dis displaying how this springs out of and ultimately leads back to the supreme good and ultimate purpose of humankind. Bernard uses the first part of the sermon to explain the central meaning of the Feast of All Saints. All Saints is given a very comprehensive sense. There are saints from heaven, Bernard says, and there are saints from the earth. And of the saints who come from the earth, some are still on earth, while some are now in heaven. The feast then celebrates the entire communion of saints, transcending time, space, and even life and death. The living saints are celebrated anonymously, since there is no way to know who they are until after they are dead. The saints in heaven are secure in their celebration, having reached the eternal life, while the living celebrate in fear of the Lord praying for help to run the course of sanctity to the end. The saints in heaven celebrate not by praising themselves, but by praising God, and in that praise, participating in God's own beatitude. Having established this difference between the eternal and blessed worship of the saints in heaven and the predicament of the living, Bernard goes on to ask the question with which this paper opened, what use are our praises to the saints? And he goes on to say, they, the saints, are fulfilled. They have no need of human honours, 
and our devotion bring them no excellence. It is clear that it benefits us, not them, that we venerate their memory. This is the point around which the entire sermon pivots, and the remainder of the sermon is devoted to elaborating how the veneration of saints benefits those who venerate them, both in terms of the form such veneration should take and in terms of the effects this will ultimately have on those who part participate in the veneration. Bernard begins to explain his claim that the veneration of saints benefits those who venerate them by suggesting that the celebration and veneration of the memory of the saints incite a threefold desire in those who participate in the cult. The desire for the society or communion of the saints, and the desire for happiness, uh, for the happiness and beatitude the saints enjoy, and lastly, the desire for their intercession and help. So this multifaceted desire is in itself salvific, inasmuch as it propels those whom it enkindles to seek the supremely desirable goods towards which it is directed. The tra trajectory of Bernard's argument can arguably be summarized as three separate steps based on these three desires. First, he establishes that celebrating the communion of saints in the lit liturgical setting to a certain extent incorporates those who celebrate into this very communion. Eternal beatitude is depicted along the lines of the eternal liturgy of praise described in Revelations, in Book 5, for instance, where worship becomes the ultimate fulfillment of human life. In joining with the communion of saints in worship, the pilgrim church on earth participate, participate in the act that defines the communion of saints, and in this way becomes part of it. Second, he shows how liturgical worship is profoundly transformative of those who participate in it leading them towards the ultimate good and perfection of human life by recalibrating the most profound alignments of the participant's character. In fact, this good can only be attained in communion with others within the body of Christ. And this body of Christ <coughs> is constituted liturgically and sacramentally. Third, it is only within such a liturgically constituted body of Christ, transcending the boundaries of time and place, that intercessory prayers find their rationale. That is, the veneration of saints is firmly rooted in a theology of liturgy within which the ultimate ambition and perfection of human life is sketched out. The first step, then, um, is, uh, well, the first step that Bernard talks about is uh, to desire securely to become part of the communion of saints, to find a place among the eternally blessed. Bernard explains, it is commonly said what the eye does not see, the heart does not grieve over. My eye is as of my memory, and to think of the saints is in a certain way to see them. Such is certainly our lot in the land of the living, and it is not a small lot, provided longing follows memory, as it ought. In this way, I say, are we associated in and to the heavens, but even so our association is not like theirs. Theirs is there in substance, but ours in desire. They are there in their presence, while we are there in our memory. When will also we be added to our fathers? When will we be presented to them in our essence? This, then, is the first desire that the memory of the saints excites, or rather, insights in us. I think I forgot to do the last sentence of the Latin there. Apologies. It is through a shared love, then, that the community of believers on earth are joined to the communion of saints in heaven. And while this union is temporary, and insecure, it provides a real, if very limited, participation in the communion of saints for people on earth. Let us become inflamed brothers. Let us rise with Christ. Let us seek what is above. Let us taste what is above. Let us desire those who desire us. Let us hurry towards those who wait for us. Let us come to meet in prayers those who expect us. For look, there is no security, no perfection, no rest in this communion of ours. And yet how good and how sweet is it also here for brothers to live as one. And there's no way my hasty translation can do justice to Bernard's Latin in this extract or in the sermon as a whole. In being united to each other and to the communion of saints by bonds of love, believers on earth get a fleeting taste of what the communion of saints possess securely and fully. The union of love among believers on earth was a real, if limited, experience of the communion of the life to come. It would not have been lost on Bernard's audience 
that he takes his phrase, how good and sweet is it for brothers to live together as one, from the Psalms. This verse was singled out as particularly important um, even within monastic culture in which the Psalter as a whole held a central place. This verse, more than most others, came to represent the brotherly love of a well-functioning monastic community and was a recurrent image in monastic treatises on spiritual friendship. Bernard in this way connects his exalted theme with the daily experience of his audience. The second desire is to a certain extent implicit in the first. Friendship in the sense of classical philosophy and spiritual friendship in the Christian tradition was not a merely reciprocal relation of mutual love. True friendship was a bond created in the shared love of some higher good and should lead to a shared attempt at attaining that good. The attitude consisted in attaining the very highest good for human beings. Therefore, the second desire, identified by Bernard as a beneficial effect of venerating the saints, was to de desire to share in their beatitude. The way to share in their beatitude was to love what they love and join with them in striving to attain the object of that love. The Christian definition of beatitude in this sense was the beatific vision of God face to face, which is precisely what the saints experience as they worship him eternally, as described in the book of Revelations. But the saints in heaven cannot lose this beatitude, while believers on earth can lose it through sin. So beatitude on earth consists, Bernard says, in fearing God and acting out that godly fear in the conversion of one's whole life. We should note that Bernard in this way assumes that participation in the liturgical veneration of saints um, as profoundly transformative on the part of the participants, inculcating a mutual love between Christians and a paramount, paramount shared love of God that resulted in a fundamental conversion of life. In taking it as given that participating in liturgical acts has a real ethical effect on the moral character of those who participate, Bernard arguably connects his account of the veneration of saints with a structure and fabric of moral philosophy and moral theology current at his own time, as well as the traditions to which he found himself heir. This connection was, moreover, was not in itself a novelty or an original development. On the contrary, it arguably had been an important part of that tradition from its conception. In stressing that the saints had no need of the veneration of the living, Bernard picked up a theme elaborated in the more general context of prayer, by St. Augustine. In commenting on Psalm uh, 134, and particularly the phrase laudate nomen domini, Augustine explains, the psalm urges us, the prophet urges us, the spirit of God urges us. Yes, even the Lord himself urges us to praise the Lord. However, he does not gain from our praises, but we do. For God does not become better if he is praised, nor worse if he is disparaged. But you become better when you praise he who is God, good, and worse, if you disparage him. He, however, remains good as he is. End of quote. It is in praising God that the faithful are brought into communion with him. God's exhortation to human beings to praise him is therefore an act of mercy, not of arrogance. As we Okay. That one's gone. Even if you were always to remain servants, you still ought to praise the Lord. How much more ought you as servants to praise the Lord so that you may marry to be his sons? Augustine was, of course, not here making the Pelagian claim that mankind, by its own merits, could earn salvation through participating in praise. The enormous volume of patristic commentary on the passage from Luke 2.14, in Gloria in Excelsis Deo et in Terra Pax Hominibus Vole Voluntatis, commemorated each Sunday in the Gloria part of the ordinary of the Mass, bears this out in overwhelming detail, as the following passage from Fulgentius of Rusca illustrates. Fulgentius states that this proclamation of joy made by the choir of angels over the fields of Bethlehem captures both God's goodwill towards men and the response of goodwill on the part of humankind. God gives himself as peace to all men, and through this peace man is enabled to respond with praise. Quote, from whom we have peace, we have received goodwill, by which, through the gift of gratuitous justification, we proclaim glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost as one God, so that we may reach the communion of angels, where, having received the gift of praise, we may glorify our God, who sits upon the throne and the Lamb forever. And note again here the echoes of uh, Revelations. 
It is grace, then, that elicits praise from human beings on earth. The justification and sanctification bestowed upon the participants of the liturgy is not a result of their own efforts, but of God's. And by God's grace, in the gift of the liturgy, the praying believer on earth is made part of the communion of saints. But how does this sanctification through grace in the liturgy work, precisely? According to Augustine, it works through perfecting the human will to reach only for what is truly and supremely good. That is, to reach not for transitory terrestrial goods, but for the transcendent good that consummates it, that brings it to its appointed end and inherent perfection. The peace that the angels proclaimed to mankind on that first Christmas night is the peace of resting in the attainment of the object of the will. The will labours until it reaches what will satisfy it, and in the attainment of its proper object it falls to rest. So confession is one. The will, then, needs to be developed and perfected until it only wills what is its highest good. And I quote, but in order that this will may be fulfilled, it is necessary that it is healed. But it will be healed as long as it does not flee from the healer, who calls, come to me, ye who labor, saying that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. For when love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, then what has been commanded is now loved. The soul thus ordered through the working of grace finds peace. They make peace in themselves who compose all the movements of the soul and subjects them to reason, that is, to mind and spirit, and have sub subdued carnal concupiscence. They become the kingdom of God. In such a person, all things are placed in order so that, that all that is distinguished and excellent in man commands the not disobedient rest, which we have in common with beasts, and moreover, that which is preeminent in man, that is, mind and reason, is subjected to something higher yet, which is truth itself, God's only begotten Son. For it, as the human soul, cannot command what is inferior unless it subjects itself to what is superior. And this is the peace that is given on earth to men of goodwill. This is the life of the consummated and perf perfect wise man. End of quote. The right ordering of the human will, then, is what allows it to attain its proper object when our goodwill responds to the one who calls us. God's will is perfected in us. And I quote again, so that no adversity may come in the way of our blessedness, which is peace. End of quote. The only proper response on the part of human beings to the grace of God at work in them was to offer the sacrifice of praise, which is a recurring theme of uh, Augustine's commentary on the Psalms, I'm sure many of you know, which is exactly what those who participate in the Gloria of the Mass do. First, the text repeats the proclamation of the angels, which explains how men of goodwill must praise and glorify God to attain their peace. Then the text leads the participants to do just that. Laudamos te, benedicimus te, adoramos te, glorificamos te. First the text explains, then it puts the explanation into practice, and the participants in worship become part of what they have just heard. In this way, the liturgy guided its participants into the modes of practice through which the ultimate aim of the liturgy could be attained. This mode of thinking, moreover, is not a feature exclusive to Christian thought. In her provocative, uh, but I think brilliant book, after writing The Liturgical Consummation of Philosophy, the theologian Catherine Pickstock suggested that moral philosophy, and thus philosophy itself, from Plato onwards, through to medieval thought, was consummated and brought to fulfillment not in the establishment of an abstract doctrine of knowledge about good and evil, but in a set of ceremonial practices open to what lay beyond the reach of thought itself. In other words, the philosophy was consummated and brought to perfection in a specifically liturgical mode of practice. While the specific details of Pickstock's argument lie beyond the present scope, the wider implications of her thesis for the interpretation of classical and medieval ethics are significant. Classical moral thought, whether in its Greek or its Roman manifestations, as well as their Christian successors, saw the moral life and moral perfection as progress towards the full realization of the inherent potentialities of human nature. Moral knowledge, then, was only realized and realizable as embodied in a particular way of life, rather than in a system of propositions. The way of life through which the specifically human capabilities were fully realized was thus the telos, the end, the purpose of moral thought and even of human life in general. 
The mode of initiation into such knowledge then was through imitation, through learning how to live um, in a certain way through apprenticeship, through shaping one's own conduct in imitations of one's community until understanding gradually developed from frequent and repeated practice. Participating in the actions and practices of one's own community within the dominant paradigms of classical and medieval ethics was thus the primary way in which moral character was formed and developed. The transformative power of participation in the veneration of saints invoked by St. Bernard is thus part and parcel of the main way in which significant moral development was conceived, conceived in his own time. By actively participating in praying in the liturgy of the offices and masses of the saints, the affective part of the soul, affected with an A, the will, was moved to desire the supreme good for human beings by way of the senses. This desire, in turn, was the moving agent in subsequent moral progression towards the chaos, the ultimate end of human life as a whole. Such a way of reasoning, however, entails that moral progress to Bernard and his tradition must include much more than what we would normally consider to belong to the moral sphere. In patristic tradition of moral theology, the human telos was always open towards the transcendent and supernatural, never enclosed within a purely human, immanent moral realm. Uh, and I guess that sentence may be more of a deliberate than I realized when I wrote it. The Christian thinkers of the Middle Ages accepted the general teleological scheme of ethics developed by the great moral philosophers of antiquity, but profoundly changed its register and frame of reference through positing the human telos not as the perfect embodiment of the ideal citizen of a polis or a civitas, but as identical with the true and ultimate aim of humanity proclaimed in the Bible, the vision of God face to face. At least from Aristotle onwards, it had been recognized that the ultimate fulfillment of human life did not consist in a passive state or in the possession of some thing. It um, consisted in an activity, an energia, a set of practices in which all specifically human capabilities were brought into play from potency to act. This was also the case with the Christian adaptations of the classical model, but while the main Greek and Roman thinkers regarded the true aim of human life to be the full participation in civic life in a city-state, the irreducible transcendence introduced by Christianity transposed this aim to encompass mankind's supernatural end. Human beings were created for a loving communion with God, and this state of love and worship was the energia that constituted the supreme good for human beings. The central virtues were no longer those that equipped their subjects for civic life, but rather the sorts of qualities that would prepare human beings to join in that perfect choir of praise of which Revelations 5 speaks. St. Bernard turns to this notion at the very end of his sermon, where all the threads of his argument so far are brought together in their ultimate convergence in the perfect and eternal act of worship that the communion of saints performed. It is in that choir beyond time that all members of the body of Christ of all times are gathered into one perfect human being, Bernard says. And continue. And there is no reason for us to doubt their gentle care for us, that is, of the saints, seeing as they will not reach their own fulfillment without us. They wait for us until we receive our restoration so that on that last great day of festivity, all members will come together in the perfect man with its greatly exalted head, so that along with his inheritance, praise is given to Jesus Christ our Lord, who is above all blessed God and worthy of praise and glory is forever. End of quote. Again then, the tra trajectory of Bernard's reasoning follows the off-trod paths of classical and patristic moral philosophy and theology. But again, they privilege liturgical acts as not only the most salvific, but also as at least the pre-libation of the ultimate fulfillment of human destiny. Liturgical celebrations of saints on earth are the closest approximation to the celestial liturgy this side of eternity, and thus constitute both the most efficient means and the most perfect end for purely human endeavor. It is also worth noting that this way of thinking about liturgy in important respects followed a notion of moral pedagogy central to many 12th century thinkers, Bernard included. The emphasis on gradual change through participating in liturgical worships, worship reflects the more universal notion that moral character and moral knowledge is developed by imitation and practice, and on reflecting on the experience of imitating and practicing. One example here is found in Bernard's treatise on the 12 steps of humility and the 12 steps of pride, 
Starting from Peter's response to the, the question of why Christ had to suffer obedience and death in human form, um, and Peter's response is, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Bernard explains, that is, so that you should imitate his obedience. Thus, from what he suffered, we learn how much suffering it is fitting that we, who are purely human, should bear for the sake of obedience, for which obedience he, who was also God, did not hesitate to die. Imitation leads to realization and understanding that could not be attained in any other way. St. Bernard explicitly states that learning entails agency on the part of the one who learns. It is by doing that one acquires knowledge. Who learns or is guided is by the very fact that he follows his teacher or guide brought to labor. And he acts of himself to get to the destination, be it spatial or intellectual, so that he may say, not I, but the grace of God with me. End of quote. To follow, sequi, is equated with imitation in St. Bernard's discourse. Imitation leads the one who learns to action, and from this action follows understanding. But understanding does not follow automatically. In order to gain such understanding, action and experience must become the object of reflection. This can be seen, for instance, by the way St. Bernard describes the ascent from self-knowledge to developing mercifulness and charity. But so that you may have a merciful heart on account of the misery of others, you should first acquire knowledge of your own misery, so that you may find the mind of your neighbour in your own, and know from yourself how you should come to his aid, following the, following the example of our Saviour, who willed his own passion in order to know compassion, and to become miserable in order to learn to commiserate. St. Bernard, of course, insists that Christ had perfect knowledge in advance, but in so doing, he ipso facto underlines the need for human beings to acquire knowledge through experience following from imitation. And he says, I, for my part, before I have got to know the truth, considered myself to be something, while truly I was nothing. But after, through believing in Christ, that is, through imitating his humility, I got to know truth. In the mystical tradition, then, imitation and reflection on experience deriving from imitation was an irreducible component of the human search for understanding and truth. It also follows from this that the activity constituting the perfect human life is an irreducibly collective activity. Again, this is not a new development with Bernard, but rather a notion that had been implied by Plato, explicitly stated by Aristotle, and thereafter had remained a central tenet of most dominant moral systems. It is only in, in becoming part of the communion of saints that the attainment of human perfection becomes possible. As the passage just quoted makes clear, salvation is, no, not just quoted, um, but the, the passages from the sermon five make clear, salvation is a corporate process. And the supreme happiness that constitutes the human telos is only attainable when all are gathered as members into one body under the same exalted head. Such a gathering, such a communion is primarily a union of the will a convergence of the deepest aspirations of desires. Again, we see that this convergence occurs in a transcendent liturgical setting, of which the liturgical celebrations of the Pilgrim Church are the closest approximations here on earth. It is in giving praise that the union of will and desire is expressed and comes to fruition. The celebration of saints here on earth is therefore both a sign of what is to come and a partial realization of that of which it is a sign. As the participants in the liturgy join their will to that of the saint in perfect worship, a bond and a communion is formed that lifts the whole community out of itself and into the perfect worship in the life to come. Bernard goes on to situate the intercession of saints firmly within this overall scheme. The reason why it is not unreasonable to hope for the intercessory prayers of the saints is just this notion that there is a communion of saints respective of time and place imperfect on earth and perfect in heaven, but comprising one united body rather than one heavenly reality and an earthly echo. The saints in heaven are able and willing to intercede on behalf of those who venerate them precisely because they ultimately comprise one unit. If we are not members of the same head as are also the saints, for what reason do we then today wish them joy with such solemn prayers, with such affection? For he who said, 
If one member is glorified, all members celebrate together. Also said that if one member suffers, all members suffer together. This, then, is our union with them, that we will wish them joy, and they will suffer with us. We will reign with them in devout meditation, and they with us, and fight for us with kind intervention. On Bernard's account, then, the saints in heaven are not supreme fixers, ready to offer supernatural remedies for everyday problems in exchange for fees and the currency of prayers and pilgrimages. It is on account of the unity of all Christians, as members of the body of Christ, that they offer their intercession. And it is through their devout adherence to the head of this body that their intercession is made efficient. And once again, Bernard proceeds to connect the liturgical occasion for which he is composing the sermon to the eternal worship of the saints. The veneration of saints centered around liturgical celebration is thus to Bernard and to his whole tradition, much more than a mere commemoration in the sense that the past for a short while is brought to mind conceptually and abstractly. Their memory becomes embodied in the venerating community, and in this embodiment, that community is changed. Commemoration on Bernard's account has a constructive force. But how, if at all, did this rarefied elaboration of the Fathers become reflected in actual saints' cults? I will in what remains suggest an answer to this problem by looking at the case of the office, Offices and Masses for St. Cute de Laubaut. It is depicted here. I have chosen this somewhat peripheral particular cult for a number of reasons. First, because I want to suggest that the theological underpinnings of the veneration of saints was not dependent on individual texts, but had become part of the tradition of the church as such. Second, because scholarship has traditionally regarded this particular cult as a clear example of a saint's cult developed specifically to add legitimacy to a royal dynasty. Having a saint in the family, so the traditional interpretation goes, automatically strengthened the position of his brothers as they took over the throne. And third, because the liturgical cycle developed for his feast is preserved in its entirety in a remarkable manuscript. This well-preserved cycle containing all the prayers, charms, and readings for the two liturgical celebrations prescribed for the saints' veneration. Um, main parts be seem to offer support to all the various schools of interpretation presently dominating scholarship on saints' cults. There are prayers for the intercession of the saints in affairs of the worshipping community that would have had human given making accusations of vulgarity but also might be used to support a more Brownian reading through which the saint's cult is seen as supporting the dynastic policies of his son, Valdemar the Great, during, during whose reign the cult was officially, officially sanctioned by the papacy. On the other hand, there are also narrative readings for the office of Matins that could be regarded as specimens of, uh, specimens of moral example, and adaptations of prayer, prayers used all over the Latin West supporting the idea that the northern past was being grafted onto a grander narrative. But can we also find traces of the theological tradition expressed so clearly in Bernard's sermon? Of course, in approaching a source text, we always bring our own horizons of expectation, leading us to a certain extent to find what we expect and overlook what we do not. While this certainly should bring us to regard our results, or my results, with some reservation, it's still permissible, I think, to use the theological conceptual scheme illustrated in Bernard's sermon to temper our rational expectation in order to uncover what other approaches may have concealed. So with this caveat in mind, then, there arguably are signs of the three main points I emphasized in Bernard's sermon. Firstly, there is a continuous focus on the transformation of those who pray towards the ideal embodiment of the Christian life, as exemplified in the elaborate antiphon for the um, uh, Magnificats at the first vesper of the Feast of Knut's Passion. May we follow you in deeds and in words and with sharpness of mind, so that we do not sink in, into mud or slide down the ice of the Valley of Misery, but instead, with you as our leader on the path of this world, let us pass through this valley into the eternal joy above. This chanted prayer is represent representative of a number of similar expressions of the same sentiment in this liturgical cycle. The onus is not on somehow changing or influencing the will of the saint, but on changing and realigning those who venerate him. As in Bernard's sermon, this change is a collective, a collective corporate process. The congregation participating in the liturgy is led through prayers for their incorporation into the true body of Christ. 
For instance, in a hymn stanza, playing on the double meaning of the word dux, Knut Laubert was a duke. Duke, pray to the king of glory, who is the bridegroom of the church, that he may preserve us in his body with a treaty of peace. The reference to the word us in this passage deserves some attention. As always in liturgical language, with the exception of the credo and the very few others, the prayers in this cycle are spoken in the first person plural. It is easy then to imagine the we in question to be the Danish people or even the dynastic party, the Jelling party, led by Knut's son, King Valdemar. The cycle as a whole, however, does not lend any firm support to such a reading. The community speaking is not described as constituted on political, geographical, or on biological basis, but rather through the act of veneration and worship itself. It is the plebs fetalis, the faithful people, the te in Christo solemnisantes. The community, the people, becomes such in the very act of joining their wills in the veneration of Knut and through him in worshipping God. And as in Bernard's sermon, the ultimate aim shared by the saint and the liturgical community is the heavenly joy alluded to at the end of Bernard's account. The prose chant for the Mass of Knut's translation ends in the following verses. Our leader, Duke Knut, make us pass through time with virtue. With you as our leader, with you as our guide, let us enjoy the true light and eternal glory in Jerusalem above. The changes effected in the participants in the liturgy, then, are described as inculcating virtue and perfecting character, and creating a bond uniting the participants to each other, as well as to the saint, and through the saint to the communion of saints in heaven. The participants are thus led towards the ultimate aim for human life, as a whole described by Christic theology. What may we conclude from these correspondences when it comes to the function and purpose of saints' cults in the 12th century? We have shown that the theological hat fits the text that gives shape to the practice, but I have not shown, and probably cannot show, that the practitioners are actually wearing it. What we may say, I would argue, is that theological resonances reveal potential limitations for other current schools of interpretation. Humes and Gibbons' contemptuous dismissal has long since been discredited, and any links between the practice of saints' cults and a sophisticated body of thought would only be the final nail in a coffin long since sufficiently shut. What a textual cycle such as Knut Laubert's offices and masses reveal in terms of the moral interpretation going back to Froude is on the one hand that the consistent pleading for saintly intercession and the persistent reaching for God through the intercession of the saint show that any interpretation privileging a purely secular self-enclosed moral message is doomed to failure when confronted with a full evidence. But on the other, the importance of moral theology and the emphasis on the improvement of character that participating in the veneration brings shows that there was a central moral dimension to medieval saints' codes, but that this dimension was always open towards and aiming for the transcendent. Arguably, the theological background may also be used to ask questions of the basic thesis associated with Peter Brown. While Brown has argued that, that the saints' cults arose as a way of a way for the elite to dress hierarchic and secular power structures in devotional garb in order to impose, on them a, impose them on a wider populace. Bernard's theology and the practice we find in the cult of Knuklavad suggest that this view may be far too reductive. It is undeniable that the cultic practices are designed to result in the realization of a desired social structure. Uh, but this structure is not a concealed version of the secular power structures of the society in question, but the very structure of the body of Christ as defined by Christian theology. This in itself does not disprove Brown's thesis, but it certainly shows that it needs to be enlarged and modified if it is to accommodate the theological influence on cultic practices. Finally, the mode of reasoning exemplified by Bernard is also an argument against the interpretation of the cults of Nordic saints as attempts at writing the Nordic past into the fabric of the Latin West as a whole. If we take Bernard at his word, the texts of liturgical cycles have no effect or power on their own as texts. They are only effective to the extent they become part of practice. It is of little or no avail to create texts that purport to change, construct, or create the past from scratch. Only when the community is recreated in practicing the texts will they have any power and life in them. The underlying reasoning of Bernard's sermon, and by extension the tradition in which he stands, is summed up through the following verdict by the liturgical scholar Robert Taft, and I quote, 
Being reminded, we remember, and in remembering, we celebrate, and celebrating, we become what we do. End of quote. Although Taft is speaking of the liturgy of hours as a whole, this statement, I would argue, also brings out the essence of what many medieval men and women thought they were doing in the practice of venerating the saints. Thank you. for a paper that was both um, textually rooted and very uh, wide-ranging theoretically in a number of ways, so a real uh, elegant piece of work. Um, we now have some time for questions. I hope it's already raised their hand so I get to ask the first one. So I was thinking about the theme of imitation. Um, and I was thinking that sometimes I get very fed up with certain students' work when they imitate in a wrong way. So for instance, um, they've noticed that they read a lot of texts that are intimidating with a lot of big words, and so they try to write a text that's intimidating with a lot of big words, and it's quite a, even if you know they were first inspired by someone who'd done something really good, what they produce isn't very good. And I, Is there a reflection in this tradition on the possibility that you can you can imitate the master, but in the wrong way. So let's say so concerned to, with the very idea of being obedient and one of the saints that you're not actually getting on with being obedient, or that, that, that sort of dynamic, does that make any sense? Yes, yes it does. And um, I guess, uh, I ha I've never found the problem addressed in, in, in the way you present it, but I think um, it was present in their minds all the same. I mean, how you imitate, and particularly, the reflection on what happens to you as you imitate is a very important part of the whole tradition. Um, and you find that both in the monastic tradition and um, in the high Middle Ages as a whole, in Hugh Sanatov with the canons and in John Salisbury in the secular schools, they emphasize the same, um, same need to imitate, but not imitate uncritically, uh, and not imitate without reflecting on what happens to you as you do it. So would, would it be possible to say you could go along to all the liturgies and say all the things and yet you'd be making no progress? Is that because you're doing it in the wrong way? Is that sort of yes. possibility reflected on? Um, I mean, it's, at least I think I would concede it would be theoretically possible. You could go through the motions without actually driving any of the benefit. It, it needed constant personal effort, constant dedication. I find it very interesting, but I'm still puzzling about one aspect, which is the, is the, the idea of praise itself. So, as you know, I follow the argument around the intention, the desire for the attitude, the communion, um, all, all of which are you know, different kinds of interactions with the saints. But praise actually adds a different dimension again in the veneration itself. And, and it's, of course, as Catholics, it's something which the tradition has heavily criticized as for. And I'm not quite sure whether the argument is fully kind of Goes, goes fully all the way to praise and veneration and reverence that the Protestant tradition would say belongs to God and not to the same. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I um, didn't say very much about that bit of, of uh, Bernard's sermon. He, do, he does address this. Um, and um, he makes it very clear that um, when we praise the saints, we do not praise them. Um, as, I mean, they're not the ultimate object of praise. We praise them for their ability to give us, uh, to lead us to God. So uh, the praise is always ultimately directed to God. Um, and uh, the, pray, uh, the praise of the saints in their eternal beatific vision is also not a praise of themselves. Um, they all join in, in, in praising God and pra in praising God in his creation. So. Um, um, there is a developed, much more fully developed than I had uh, time to go into, uh, notion of um, what sort of praise is meant and how praise, if done correctly, can feed into this tradition where the other elements also form part. Um, and you also see the same very clearly in um, Augustine's uh, narrations of the Psalms, uh, where this notion of praise and the definition of the correct type of features very heavily. There are some stunningly beautiful passages there. Um, so, um, 
So yes, uh, I think you're, you're right. Uh, my argument doesn't quite account for that, but um, the, the medieval argument does. Um, let's ask a question about your hand music approach. Um, one thing which it seems to resonate with is uh, something which maybe is coming more before in classic theology now, um, in terms of its relationship to social science. Um, and this is a kind of principle coming out of Argentinian tradition of looking at popular piety, where you take the kinds of terms that in which the community itself um, understands its traditions, its practices, and histories, and uses them as the primary kind of hermeneutical lens to understand their practices. It seems like you're doing something kind of parallel here, um, in moving away from these kind of reductive accounts, more so looking at how people are accounted for it directly at the time. Is, is this like coming out of any wider movement within historical studies? Not that I know of. Uh, it's, in my case, it came out of my own annoyance at scholarship on the topic. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, the, 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 I'm sure there will be uh, others, but... Um, um, and uh, we, we have this problem, uh, when I used to, to wax lyrical to my, my colleagues in Norway about uh, the beauty of medieval theology, um, they would always throw the one um, argument at me that, well, we don't know, that's just the view of an elite, we don't know anything about what um, most people thought. And um, I guess popular piety as such has been lost, but we at the very least have the texts that um, the wider populace were invited to participate in. And we also have um, both Latin treatises and vernacular translations of explanations of the structure of the liturgy. So for instance, where I come from, we have Old Norse translations of um, and adaptations of Rupert of Rights and uh, William Carruthers uh, were meant to be read to people, so they would have, uh, they would know the basic structure, but they would know what was going on and what the point of things was at every point of the history. So we can approach, we can never get there because the sources have been lost, but we can at least try to recreate the framework within which popular parties would have worked. It's related to Nikki's question. I mean, <clears throat> the historical work seems to show that the veneration of sins was an enormously complex picture of different practices. And the many of the practices were democratic or even subversive in the sense that the guilds would be led by lay people, pilgrimages and so on wouldn't be clerically led and wouldn't necessarily fit neatly into um, sort of established church structures. And, and I'm just wondering if, if the theology is broad enough to. to to account for that, if there wasn't also a kind of democratic and subversive dimension to the intercession of the saints. Sometimes the saints would be our allies, most speaking people on the ground against those impositions of power or challenging those impositions of power rather than simply examples of, of obedience and, uh, and, and moral improvement. Um, I'm thinking about what Ian Duffy's has shown in the of the Odds, which is mm. quite a bit later, but, but you know, shows very convincingly the complex and almost anarchic nature of veneration of the saints. I wonder if you can say something about that. Oh yes. Um, um, I think the first thing to say is, is that the, the obedience that uh, is being um, held up is not obedience to people primarily. It's, it's obedience to, to God and to the, uh, the ways of life that lead us to God. So. Um, uh, so that there's always, in principle, this uh, potentially subversive element that if the uh, people in power lead us away from God, then uh, true obedience uh, leads to disobedience to those people. Um, and um, to a certain extent, you, you can find that in, in, in at least some of the saints' cults. Um, just uh, this Knut Laubert cult is, is one of the first cults that got... Um, official uh, papal approval. This is just in the period where um, St. Cults stopped um, being uh, just local phenomena, but um, they need to seek papal approval. And I guess that was the only way to, to get it through, because it, it, it's, it's an odd cult in that um, he was venerated as a martyr, but he didn't actually die for the sake of the faith, and not even uh, the legend they read during the liturgy said that he was died, uh, that he was killed for his faith. Uh, so it, it's a bit of an odd 
concoction. But, uh, but yes, uh, there would always be uh, a subversive, potentially subversive element in there because the obedience was to transcendent ideas and not anything else. the theology of praise here would overlap if at all with the theology around venerating icons? I would guess it would. I mean it, it would be um, Bernard is not a good example of that because he was um, not particularly fond of visual decoration in, in churches but um, um, you could turn the same arguments, the same basic arguments, in that direction too, that you, you venerate God through icons, and um, they become um, an aid to focus your worship of God, rather than something that comes between you and God. Um, so why would Bernard have been against them if they're such a... <coughs> well, um, that's... I'm not sure if, if the answer to that is purely theological. Uh, I mean, it, it's um, when the Cistercian Order arose and uh, when Bernard came in and, and um, took leadership of it, it was in reaction to a particular kind of uh, monasticism where opulence had become increasingly uh, dominant. So the Cistercians deliberately went out of their way to show that we are not doing this. We are being more Benedictine than the Benedictines. We retreat into the desolate areas. Um, we have austere churches. Even the books were uh, undecorated. So they had a very austere aesthetic just to mark that we are not like them. Um, so I think he may, may have been caught in his own net there. <laughs> Time for wine. I suppose, um, uh, to, to go back to a question related to Nikki's question, it seems that all those other kind of explanations and yours, yours is not exactly just one more parallel to the others, because they do all have a, a reductive quality and almost an in principle not paying attention to what people said they were doing. So could you say any more to eliminate that kind of deeper clash between ways of reading a, a traditional um, well, it's it, it, that's something that's still puzzles me because even uh, well, at least in, within history, most of the best scholarship doesn't really address the question of what's the point of all this. So there was uh, a big, beautiful book published by uh, a very prominent medieval historian about a decade ago that um, was supposed to treat medieval cultural saints in all of its facets. But he hardly mentions, he hardly asks the question, what's the point? And to the extent that he does, he regurgitates the old. Um, so, might it then be that there's a kind of systematic historical blind spot, and is, is what you're telling us, and then do you have an account of why? I don't know. Um, I, I think to a certain extent, with some notable uh, exceptions, um, there is. A big theological blind spot in, in most historians. Boss Giles is one of the exceptions uh, with his work on Anselm's theology, but generally speaking, uh, that seems to be the case. Um, so, might it just be a kind of lack of education that people aren't comfortable with theological texts, so they just avoid reading them as theological and then they can never engage with the ideas? Yeah, I, I think it may have something to do with the understanding of the discipline of history that has uh, developed. This is not what we do. Yeah, I'm just thinking to how your position would deal with the physicality of the saints and, and relics. And particularly in monasteries, I'm thinking of the example with Fleury uh, in the 11th century where the saint fell asleep, so they had to physically batter in the sticks in order to wake him up to start doing things again. Um, that's a, a good question. Werner um, mentions. Um, uh, relics specifically in, in the sermon, and uh, he mentions um, them repeatedly. And um, both relics and physicality in general was very important uh, within this tradition because, um, well, both because it, it was good to have something tangible to, to focus on, to, to draw our attention towards God, but also because the, the physical world is made more important 
by these basic theological principles, as far as I can see, because uh, also the bodies of the believers become important parts of the liturgical celebration. So what you do with your body, this is very clearly this man describing to yourself, for instance, but also um, in, in Bernard, uh, the postures you take, the way you adapt your body to the various liturgical elements as you go through the Mass or through the office, play an important and irreducible role. So the entire physical world is brought into the celebration in a very concrete way. Any last question before we let the wine through? Okay, well, thank you very much. That was a, a very interesting.